Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nails It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery material, but now you're actually tuned into our OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. And I must apologize for being out for the past week and a half or so. Um, for those of you that may or may not know, there was a hurricane that came through uh, New Orleans where I am doing training and kind of messed some things up and left us with a, without power for a little while. So uh, we have not been able to upload the episodes secondary to some life things, but we are now back in full effect. So we will start cranking out these episodes yet again. And you're now kind of tuned into our sports review series. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, please go and hit the subscribe button. Um, if this is your second time listening, welcome back. If this is your third plus time, welcome back yet again. We hope at this point that you follow us on social media at Nailed It Ortho, as well as have went and left a review in iTunes or whatever you listen to us on. So uh, let's go ahead and hop into it. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a digital bank built for doctors by doctors. From medical student to attending, Panacea offers free checking and loan options just for physicians, including their PRN personal loan that gives you up to 75000 at an interest rate less than half of a credit card. Panacea Financial can also refinance your medical school debt with no maximums or help with commercial needs such as practice or surgery center buy-ins. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how you can join the physicians nationwide who expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of the Primus member FDIC. And please, if you go, mention it, Nailed It Ortho in the How Did You Hear About Us section. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Moving on. Um... In, in terms of uh, kind of MPFL and uh, patellar instability, uh, we, I, we've heard about this thing. It's called the trochlear, uh, tibial tubercle, the trochlear groove distance or the TTTG. Uh, can you kind of go into that and what it's used for? Yeah. And, you know, the, again, this is more for um, patellar instability. And they were talking about this TT, <clears throat> TG distance. So this can be used or measured on a CT or an MRI. And what this is, is you look at the axial cuts of the, of the CT scan and you have a, a cut somewhere around the notch and you have a cut somewhere around the um, tibial tubercle and you draw lines, you know, right through the center of the notch and the tubercle um, uh, uh, apex and you measure distance between those two. So if the distance between those two is greater than 20, uh, sometimes those patients may, may benefit from actually uh, uh, medializing or anterior medialization of that tibial tubercle, uh, which is always known as a Fulkerson osteotomy. Now there are a lot of, um, a lot of different osteotomies and techniques. Uh, we have an episode with Dr. Yank on patellar instability where he goes a little bit more deeper into these. If you want to, you know, listen to that and, and find out a little bit more about patellar instability, as well as the Catan Duchamp's and Salsavati ratio, exactly what those are and what that's measuring. Um, but just know, you know, a, a, a TT TG distance greater than twenty is one of the things you want to be on the lookout for, and those patients could uh, benefit from um, from decreasing that TT TG uh, distance. 
And we'll, we'll probably talk about that a little bit later when we talk about, you know, um, patellar instability and MPFL reconstructions. But that's just kind of one thing to be able to recognize on the on the films. And, and since we're talking about the films and we're talking about advanced imaging, what is a characteristic bone bruising seen on MRI with ACL injuries? In this, I... Uh it may be the only thing that's shown on some uh, questions. They won't, they won't show you the mid sagittal view that shows the absence of an ACL or a torn ACL. They'll just show you um, the lateral uh, compartment and the medial compartment of the knee and say, what's the most likely injury associated with this bone bruising pattern. And it's the middle one third of the lateral the distal lateral femoral condyle and the posterior one third of the lateral tibial plateau uh, will be will show increased edema and they're knowing known as kind of kissing lesions um, between those those two areas. Uh, so it it may come up that they show you that and they say what's the pathology associated with this um, bone bruising pattern, um, and then. Uh, what about uh, a bucket handle meniscus tear on an MRI? Yeah, so for this, if you're looking at a, a sagittal image, you can see um, what's called like a double PCL sign where it'd be kind of two black lines going, um, you know, from, from P to A. And, and that'll be because that, that meniscus tear is flipped up um, into the knot. So it appears as if there's two, um, if there's two uh, uh, PCLs. And you can also look on on your coronals and you, you may see a piece of the, um, a piece of the meniscus up inside of the notch. Um, so that may be another thing that may clue you in towards a bucket handle meniscus tear. And, uh, and we have a, a podcast episode, uh, on how to read knee MRIs. And we go into this in uh, great detail with Dr. Saltzman. And we have a, a good video on YouTube of, going through and specifically how you um, how you see what you know uh, meniscus injuries are horizontal vertical tears um, chondral lesions different types of lesions uh, what exactly you're looking at what lines mean what so definitely check that out if you want to learn some more about uh, how to read a knee mri uh, but continuing on if you have an acl deficient knee so somebody had an acl tear uh, 10 years ago that has not undergone any type of operative treatment, uh, injury to which meniscus is more common? Uh, the chronically deficient knee will have more medial meniscus uh, tears and um, kind of just going along with that, you can then assume that acute ACL injuries are involving more of the lateral meniscus. And that's I can distinctly remember the page in uh, that step one uh, book from from med school that that kind of goes that over that book. Yeah, first aid uh, where it was in. The, I just remember this. It was on a right hand page in the at the top of the page. <laughs> I talked about this because it was I was like one of those where finally in med school i i got a, a glimpse of of ortho so i distinctly <laughs> remember that, that the, the chronically deficient uh, the chronically acl deficient knee was the medial meniscus had more uh, injury but the acute acl knee uh, involved a lateral meniscus 
And uh, talking about the meniscus, uh, a common surgical technique is a partial meniscectomy rather than a repair, especially in those nearing the age of needing a arthroplasty. Uh, what is the uh, most likely complication for a partial meniscectomy? Yeah, so if you resect too much meniscus, this can actually increase the joint uh, contact pressures and increase your chances of developing degenerative joint disease. So, you know, you kind of not want, you, you don't want to take too much meniscus when you're performing these um, partial meniscectomies. And, and since we're talking about partial meniscectomies, you know, some of these meniscus uh, injuries are amenable to actually being repaired. Uh, so which one, which, uh, which type of meniscus tears are amenable to being repaired? Uh, these ones are uh, preferably in the red, red zone. So uh, the meniscus is, like we all know, is made up of the uh, three separate zones. Uh, there's the uh, red, red zone, which is the most peripheral or closest to the blood supply because the blood supply comes in uh, uh, circumferentially around the outer perimeter and with blood vessels that make its way into the uh, internal aspects of the meniscus. So you have the red, red zone, you have the uh, red, white zone, and then the white, white zone. And the white, white zone uh, is the least vascular, least likely to be amenable to repair. So that if tears are in that area, that's when you're doing the partial meniscectomies versus the uh, peripheral red, red zone or red, white zone uh, and root tears vertical tears and large tears that are uh, up to four centimeters long uh, are going to be the meniscus tears that are more amenable for repair. And uh, even uh, the uh, age plays a factor in it. And a lot of times for patients uh, over the age of 40, um, you're leaning more towards a partial meniscectomy versus an outright tear, uh, unless it's one of the kind of rare uh, high-level athletes that are still going strong at 45 years of age. But um, most of the time, those over 40 are getting a partial meniscectomy and starting the, the time clock on uh, degenerative disease in a total knee arthroplasty. Um, but uh, in, in terms of these repairs, we've heard of uh, an outside-in repair and an inside-out repair. What's the difference between those? Yeah, for a very long time, I was very confused on, on this and, uh, uh, and and tried to figure out what it was and still had no idea. And uh, and if you listen to our, our interview or our episode with Dr. Saltzman, which was recorded not too long ago, you could still hear me on there being confused about which one is what. <laughs> so, uh, so those of you that are confused, just know you're not alone. Uh, but so for our uh, inside, our inside out repairs, and, and Spencer, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so for inside out repairs is when we have our, our needle inside, uh, like inside the knee, and then where uh, we are you know, kind of piercing meniscus uh, through inside, the sutures are coming out through the skin, and you tie the knot, you know, on the back of the capsule, you might make a little incision uh, and, and tie those two knots and suture it down, which may be used for or utilized for more posterior root tears or posterior meniscus tears versus outside in is when you are you kind of inserting that needle through the skin and you're piercing the meniscus and then you're feeding 
your PDS um, suture or whatever suture you are, you have through there, and you are um, grabbing it again from in, you're grabbing the other side of the suture from inside of the knee from where you've pierced the uh, the meniscus with another uh, needle, and you're pulling it back out and and you're suturing it that way. Um, so you're suturing it above the above the skin that way. Not about the skin, but you're you're suturing it um, and you're tying it that way, so it, the, the sutures are passed from uh, from outside to in. Uh, now, Spencer, did I, did I get that right? Yes, you did. <laughs> yes. Um, thankfully, yeah. a lot of the uh, meniscus repairs are also done with the all inside techniques, so they have mm -hmm. the, the special. Uh, kind of newer technology where everything is done inside but yeah it, it's kind of exactly what you were talking about where outside in is where you start outside uh you pierce the meniscus grab the suture and uh tie it on top that way versus inside out is where you start on the inside and then you move your way to the outside but either way the knots are still uh, tied uh, kind of outside of the articular or, or the articulating portion of the meniscus so that these um, these tears can be uh, repaired. Um, but I would say that there's uh, outside of somebody who's really good at it, I think that the all inside repairs are gaining a lot of traction. Um, it's what I like to do the most because it's the easiest for me, but I think that the still the gold standard is this kind of outside in or inside out techniques that really tax the uh, meniscus down to the outer capsule. Yeah, yeah, that inside out with kind of that vertical uh, mattress sutures. Yeah, I think that is still the current gold standard. But yeah, I've seen those all inside uh, techniques that are pretty pretty slick. It's pretty quick. You know, you just kind of pierce it and yeah. pierce it and boom boom. And then it's uh, and it's done. It can be done within you know a couple of minutes. So uh, yeah, those are pretty neat. Honest. They um, they do run the risk of nerve injury, especially if you're working in that posterior lateral aspect uh, because of uh, the kind of nerves and vessels in that area. And you're doing somewhat of a blind stab with the needle. Um, because you, you still want to do, uh, you, you want to make it through that posterior capsule because what it is, is it's, it's knotless, but it has kind of a, uh, similar to like a suture button. So how it works is there's a mini suture button in there. So you pass it through the tissue and then as you pull the suture back, that suture button is going to catch on the capsule and prevent it from pulling out. And then you do another stab a centimeter away from there or so, and then it deploys another suture button and then you cinch it down and cut it. So there's, there's no knots associated with it. So you can't have failure of the suture button, but um, for me, it's easier because it's less time and less time doing arthroscopy for me equals more <laughs> happiness in my life. So. <laughs> yeah, gotta write that one up. <laughs> There's an inverted uh, 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 relationship between those two, so less arthroscopy is more happiness versus the other way around. Oh man! 
but oh. uh, let's see here. So, so we talked about the, the ACL uh, has a common uh, or is commonly involved with a lateral meniscus tear and acute ACL tear with lateral meniscus. Is there improved healing of uh, the knee uh, or if you have a combined meniscal repair with an ACL reconstruction? I'm just going to go ahead and just have to go say yes, uh, there is <laughs> the easy answer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are improved rates of healing uh, when you are repairing the meniscus along with uh, with an ACL reconstruction. I don't know 100% the, the reason behind it. It may be due because you kind of have more of those uh, uh, factors that are that are released, um, you know, in the knee, the kind of these like growth factors to kind of stimulate healing a little bit. But um, mm-hmm. yes, there are. And uh, so say you have a, an acute meniscus root tear. Uh, what is the treatment for that? Do you just non-op it in, a, in an 18-year-old uh, high-level athlete or uh, what are you going to do? So the the root is different than just the regular meniscus. And so you are going to repair the root tears just because of, of how they are going to really affect the mechanics of the knee. If you have a one of the root is flapping in the knee, then it's going to cause a lot more injury. But um, if it's a grade three or four cartilage uh, damage or defects, um, these patients are most likely not going to benefit from all the work necessary from an acute meniscus root tear and doing all of that work for somebody who has significant cartilage damage and is on their way to uh, some sort of uh, arthroplasty, whether it's uh, medial compartment only or a total knee, um, it's really not worth all the work. But yes, a healthy, young, active patient with an acute meniscus root tear, you're going to be repairing uh, all of those. Um, and then uh, uh, I just actually had treated a meniscus cyst, which was weird. Mm. But uh, what type of tears are meniscus cysts? Uh, associated with yeah so he's going to be those those horizontal cleavage tears and more particular more common they're kind of like a a middle third tear of the lateral meniscus which is uh which is commonly seen kind of that fluid goes to that tear and and makes that cyst in the back so uh, when you have these you kind of treat these with your partial meniscectomy and you can decompress these cysts uh, through the tear so uh, that Mm -hmm. is I mean, that's, that's really what we got with these meniscus cysts. And since we're on a meniscus, uh, let's, let's just keep on going. Uh, what is a discoid meniscus and how do you diagnose that? So the discoid meniscus is, a, is an abnormal formation of uh, the usually the uh, lateral meniscus uh, in a pediatric patient. And what you're going to see is uh, kind of a contiguous lateral meniscus on uh, three consecutive sagittal MRI images. And what that means is the, as you're looking through the sagittals, the peripheral meniscus you'll see along uh, kind of a black line because you're going through the red, red zone. Uh, But as you become more central in the knee through the sagittals, that is going to decrease and then you'll begin to see kind of an anterior triangle of the meniscus and a posterior triangle where the uh, 
cartilage surfaces of the distal femur and proximal tibia are in direct contact with each other. But a discoid meniscus does not have that um, kind of central absence because of a lack of, I think it was apoptosis during the embryonic stages of uh, development for the meniscus. And so it's just really just one flat uh, bar of type one collagen that makes up that meniscus. They're not always uh, symptomatic, but uh, if they do become symptomatic, then what you're doing is it's called a saucerization. And for the longest time I had resisted the term saucerization because I didn't, I was like, there's no way that they're actually making it into more of like a saucer, like a, <laughs> uh, like a dish or something. And, and then I saw it and I was like, oh, that is exactly what you do is you do just saucerize it. And so you, you try and turn a, for lack of a better term, like a thick brick of a meniscus into a more native shape where the middle of the meniscus is significantly more thin than the uh, lateral and exterior aspects of it. Um, and then uh, you do have a few patients that are young, active, but they have just absolutely destroyed their meniscus with either a very significant tear associated with some other uh, internal derangements of the knee, or they have failed several other repair attempts, but their cartilage is still in good uh, um, condition. Um, when when would you do a meniscus transplant? Yeah, you know, this is like an area of controversy. I mean, I don't know if there's any like super clear consensus of, uh, of you know, when to do a meniscus transplant and, and what patients, but I think there is a clear consensus that, you know, all non-operative um, management must be tried first and, and, and they must have failed all non-operative management. Uh, but some patients that may, uh, you know, fall under this category that could use a meniscus transplant are going to be young patients or patients less than the age of 50 that have, that have a lower BMI, BMI less than 30. Uh, they do not have advanced arthritis. They do not have any type of abnormal alignment such as a you know varus or valgus malalignment or you know increased or uh, or decreased tibial slope and then these are also patients that uh, that that may have had a prior total or near total meniscectomy those these groups of patients uh, that have exhausted all non-operative measures may be indicated for meniscus transplants but again this is a, a, an area that is a little controversial uh, but if a patient is to undergo a meniscal transplant, what is the most common complication after transplant? Uh, the most common complication is a allograft tear, um, obviously. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and the, the most uh, crucial aspect of doing a meniscal transplant to prevent complications, so the, the best prognosis is associated with an appropriately sized allograft. Um, and I think it, I can't recall the numbers. I'll pull them up if I can real quick. But I want to say uh, if it's 15% off in terms of overall size, uh, then they are at a higher risk of failure. 
the best outcomes are found in patients with appropriately sized allografts rather than using an allograft and trying to uh, cut it or reconstruct it to the size you need. Just grab one that is appropriately sized uh, from the get-go and, and they do better. Yeah. Kind of separate from uh, meniscus injuries uh, are uh, kind of associated cartilaginous uh, injuries. So uh, we've heard of like osteochondritis, desiccans, uh, lesions. Um, where are those most commonly seen in the knee? Yeah. So these are most um, most commonly seen at the lateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle. Um, and, and, and what these, what this, I guess, this osteochondritis desiccans, what this lesion is, is when you have uh, subchondral bone and overlying cartilage separation. So you have a separation, again, uh, of that overlying cartilage and the subchondral bone. And again, the most common place is going to be the lateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle that is a question or that is something that is asked a bunch. And so say, for example, we have a, uh, you know, a 13 year old um, child or 13 year old boy that comes into the office um, and he, you know, he's been complaining of some generalized knee pain and you do an x-ray of him and you note that he has an, an osteochondritis desiccans lesion uh, it's not, uh, it is not a displaced lesion. And you also notice that, he, you know, his, his physis are still open. He's 13 years old. Uh, what are you going to do for treatment? So uh, for somebody with open physis, uh, it's going to be conservative, non-weight bearing for uh, one to three months has the best prognosis. Um, you do want to opt for treatment. Uh, if there is a intraarticular loose body, if they are persistently symptomatic and, uh, the older the patient, they're going to need a little bit more help. So, uh, you can either do, uh, like subchondral drilling versus, uh, kind of flap resection if it's an unstable flap and, uh, intraarticular drilling versus some sort of like mosaoplasty with uh, either autograft cartilage disc taken from another area of the body versus allograft uh, plugs. Um, and I guess I just kind of went into the next uh, question here, but some of the treatment <laughs> options for these cartilage lesions, microfracture, if there's a unstable cartilage flap, you're just going to perforate. You want to make sure you perforate the entire subchondral bone. And uh, it's replaced by uh, the, the type 2 collagen uh, is replaced by fibrocartilage and eventually type 1 collagen. Um, it's not as reproducible just because uh, you can have overgrowth of the fibrocartilage, which can be symptomatic as well. Um, so it's kind of hit or miss on how much uh, fibrocartilage formation you get, but uh, what is classically done is that microfracture versus an autograft transfer or mosaoplasty. If you have a defect that's greater than uh, uh, two and a half centimeters. Um, uh, and then you can do autologous chondrocytes 
but uh, and then an allograft is used for larger lesions. So, um, yeah, I, it's one of those that I I mean, knowing the numbers, uh, I I never really paid attention to specifically to the numbers in terms of what is two and a half centimeters versus five centimeters versus one centimeter. And it's kind of just using a little bit of your intuition where if you look at a cartilage defect in the knee and you're like, wow, that's a lot of cartilage that's missing, then you're probably going to lean more towards doing some sort of autologous plug or allograft plug versus like, ah, that's not that bad. It, I can fit a, a few micro fracture holes in that area and, and, and they'll do fine from there. But uh, for test taking purposes, they may tell you, hey, this patient has a three centimeter squared uh, defect. What do you want to do? Um, then you would want to do more of an autograft transfer rather than a microfracture in that instance. Um, but uh, yeah. similar, similar enough to an OCD lesion of the knee, you, there is something called a sonk or spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee. Uh, what, what is that and what's the treatment for it? Yeah. And I just really just wanted to quickly touch on, um, a little stuff about the, those, uh, those autograph transfers, those oats, those osteochondral autographs. Um, one of the things I know that they've mentioned on is, you know, a lot of places where you may get that autograph fund would be the non-weight bearing portion, uh, of the knee or of that, of that condyle. So I know, um, donor site morbidity, is one of the kind of the complications or one of the things to know about using a, um, an autograft. Uh, as, for, as far as uh, autologous chondrocytes, that's kind of that two-stage procedure where you go and you get a biopsy of some cartilage cells and you let it grow for uh, X amount of weeks and you come back and replant that and you may put like a little fibrin glue or something on top of it to hold it in place. And I know there's newer technologies where there's like, you know, a one-stage procedure and they have like a juvenile um, partic- uh, particulated cartilage products. Um, I think Dr. Nully, we have an episode with him where he talks a little bit more about cartilage restoration. If you all want to learn uh, a little bit more about, you know, kind of these different graft choices and when to use one versus the other. Uh, but yes, to answer your question, as far as spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee, uh, this can sometimes be seen, you know, after knee arthroscopy in a middle-aged women. And, you know, of course, you get an MRI and you just kind of see like, you know, this, this osteonecrosis or this, this lesion. And typically for this, it's just symptomatic treatment. They're typically uh, self-limiting and, and do not require operative intervention. Um, sometimes you can get like, you know, different from this, you have true osteonecrosis of the of one of the condyles for which, you know, you may do something like a core decompression or, you know, things of that nature. But for this true kind of spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee, these are typically self-limiting, uh, self-limiting uh, uh, conditions. Now, yep. is, uh, is arthroscopic synovectomy as effective as traditional open procedures for synovial lesions? You know, we're getting a little onky here, a little oncology kind yeah, of here. A little bit. <laughs> Uh, and they are, um, which, uh, I mean, is, is nice to know for the patients that they, I mean, in order to do a full complete synovectomy, I mean, you may have to open up that knee anteriorly and posteriorly traditionally, but, uh, to be able to do it arthroscopically, um, 
is definitely a benefit for the patients and it's useful for uh, things like PVNS, uh, synovial chondromatosis or uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and then uh, as we're, say you have a, a patient on the uh, OR table, you, you uh, put the scope in, you're taking a look around, getting your diagnostic uh, part done. Um, and you see some of these like synovial folds within the, uh, within the knee. What are those called and, and what can you do about them? Yeah, so it's like those those plica or plica or plica. That's what is how I pronounce them. Uh, probably butchering the name, uh, but yeah. So just like you said, those are synovial um, folds or that are that are the uh, embryologic remnants, and sometimes it can be uh, pathological. You know, um, the medial plica is most common. Uh, and sometimes these can actually cause abrasions to the medial femoral condyle. So if you're doing a knee arthroscopy and you note these, you can actually just resect them. You can use a you know shaver, or biter, et cetera, to uh, resect these plica. Um, and yeah. and, and uh, yeah, yeah, anything else you want to add? No, it's really some of those. I mean, uh, I, I've seen a few where, I mean, uh, and it, a lot of times it's pediatric patients. Um, like in their, like, or more adolescents, like in their teens, uh, where, I mean, they just, they have persistent knee pain, nothing's worked, they've exhausted six months of stretching and physical therapy, they've uh, gone through the whole gamut of activity modification, and they're still symptomatic in the knee, and so you, you finally bite the bullet, and you're like, all right, we're going to do a diagnostic arthroscopy, and just kind of see what's in there. What what can we see in here that's not available on the MRI? And and just like you said, I mean, some of them these medial plica can be the the symptomatic reason, and they don't really always show up on an MRI because they're so thin and they're uh, usually out of plane for an MRI, and and they can be uh, useful. And so by taking a few of those down and seeing the patient back after a few weeks, they're like, yeah, my I don't have the same discomfort that I used to in my knee and it was the reason for it. So they, they definitely can be symptomatic. I've seen it before, but it's still one of those that you, you're definitely still exhausting all non-operative managements before you're exposing these patients to surgery, just because no, no surgery is a small surgery. They, they all have their own risks and you want to make sure that you're not placing these patients under undue, uh, uh, risk that they they could avoid with non-operative management. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you enjoyed this OIT review series episode. If you have not, please go and look in the description. And we are going to put out some um, some companion notes to this podcast. So if you want early access to that, go and put your email in the link in the description right underneath this podcast episode hit the subscribe button and we'll see you next week